You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. How are we doing? Good. Maybe you're wondering if there's going to be a message today. There is. It's still yet to come. Um, and it's, as Brad said, in, in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible that you'd like to read along in, <clears throat> you can turn to Luke 14, where we're continuing off from last week. Uh, a challenging passage, but a very, uh, very good, and I believe necessary one for us to hear today. Uh, Luke 14, I'll start at verse 24 and read through to verse 35. Now, great crowds were traveling with him, So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first uh, sit down and calculate the cost and see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears listen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Uh, Back in high school, I had a tutor. He was a man from our church. He was very smart and good at teaching. And uh, he, w- he was more than a tutor, though. He was also a mentor to the students that he taught, right? He took a genuine interest in our lives, especially because we were, you know, planning the next stage of planning, the next stage of our life after high school. High school students, where are you? Do you feel that right now? Do you have to, you know, plan what's next? I remember it wasn't so long ago for me, so that's kind of where I was at when I had this mentor. And yeah, he, he cared in, about our success, not just in our math and science, but in life. And so I remember discussing career paths with him, and he was an engineer. And so he would tell us again and again that as he became an engineer, there was something that happened after you graduate with your bachelor's degree and then begin your master's studies. And it was that the workload for engineering became unbearable for most people, almost unbearable. It was cranked up and just, he said it was totally insane. As soon as you were in your grad studies, it was so hard to go through the program. Uh, But he said that this was partly for the purpose of weeding students out, believe it or not. Because there's a lot of students who want to become engineers But universities don't just want anyone to go out into the world and engineer stuff, because if you don't have what it takes, you're going to, you know, create things that fail, basically, and that's not good. So he said, yes, it was so hard, but it was partly for the purpose of 
of thinning the crowd and weeding people out so that only those who were 110% committed um, would go on to become an engineer. Now, in hindsight, I can't help but wonder if my tutor emphasized this to me as a way of saying, Blair, you might not want to try to become an engineer. <laughs> he was over my shoulder as I did math and science. Um, he wouldn't have outright said, you don't do it, but maybe very gently he was suggesting that I had that God had other things in plan for my life. And in fact, while we're on the topic, he did tell me that God had other things in, in mind for my life. He was the most direct in speaking into me that I would, in fact, go on into ministry. This is true, and it blows my mind because I didn't really know what to think of that at the time, but here we are. So we can thank Gord, or blame Gord, I guess, depending on, you know, how, how things are. But no, I, I do thank God for the people in, in our lives who speak um, words of, of truth and encouragement into us that help guide us uh, where we may be going. Now, I bring this up because as we began our passage in verse 25, it tells us that large crowds were following traveling with Jesus. Now, to the modern reader, we hear this and we think, great, this is good, right? If you've got a, a, a large following, you're doing something right. Then why on earth does Jesus turn to them and say what he says? Why does he do this? He essentially discourages them from following him, not encouraging them, right? Perhaps Jesus hasn't attended enough church conferences about, um, you know, church growth and strategic planning or something. Because it seems like he's, again, just going completely against what he should be doing by, you know, getting more followers. Verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Okay, um, perhaps you've heard before or are familiar with uh, the, the verse that we call the Great Commission. Uh, this comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I've taught you, commanded you, and remember, I'm with you to the end of the age. So we hear this, and it's exciting, right? This is what part of what Brad was encouraging us towards in our missional mindset. It's the Great Commission. Yes, we're going to go and make disciples, baptizing them. We love this. But then we read today's passage in Luke 14, and this kind of sounds like the not-so-great commission, doesn't it? Compared to Matthew 6, the Great Commission, this one sounds like the not-so-great commission when it comes to making disciples. One pastor mentioned that a crowd and a church, a crowd and a church are not the same thing. A crowd of people and a church are not necessarily the same thing. This is to say that while Jesus was attracting large crowds, he recognized a problem that many of these people were definitely not prepared to actually follow him where he was going. And so, yes, Jesus is thinning the herd. He is making his following smaller on purpose. And the reason that he discourages them from following him is pretty plain in that he says that discipleship is going to cost them, some of them their lives, 
uh, literally, and others just figuratively, discipleship is going to cost them. So today we're sitting in the tension between you know the Great Commission and Luke 14, which says that there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. This is what's happening here, and it is tense and uncomfortable. But before we close our Bibles and walk away, I want to you know, wrestle with it a little bit and talk about what it means to have this cost of discipleship. Um, our Kidsgate story really set us up well for our conversation because it was talking about salvation, right? Uh, by grace through faith. Salvation, being saved by Jesus, is a free gift from God, right? It's a free gift. There's nothing we can do which causes God to love us more or less because he already loves us completely. He loves us so much that he came to earth to die a, a torturous death on the cross to justify us, as we learned, right? For humans like you and me to be saved. But here we are already talking about the cross, which leads us to this tension that we're feeling in today's passage, that the way of Jesus is a way of sacrifice, of self-giving, of laying down one's life. The love of God is self-giving, and one that if we are serious about and want to follow after, is going to cause us to lay ourselves down and to carry our cross as we are discipling after Jesus. So again, salvation is free to those who come to the cross of Christ, absolutely. But discipleship is for those who will take up their own cross to follow Jesus. So there's a tension between the two. I would like to clear some of the tension, though, from the verse that we read from our main passage um, that many of us may be struggling with, and that is hearing Jesus say that we should uh, hate our families, right, and hate our lives. Now, some of us read this and we're like, yeah, well, I kind of do, you know, hate my family, hate my life. So I got that covered. <laughs> Good to go, right? Um, <laughs> but we'll talk about that because um, the word for hate to us, you know, the modern reader, is a positive antagonism which means it's, it's nasty, right? It's, it's that we wish harm to fall upon the thing that we hate. It's like, I hate you, I'm going to punch you in the face. That's, hate is a very strong word in our language, right, when we use it. I tell my kids, you're not allowed to say that you hate whatever, you know, I don't know, the lunch I've made them. <laughs> it's too strong of a word. Don't say hate for that reason. But the way that Jesus uses it, and in some other biblical examples as well, to hate means to love less by comparison. It means to love less by comparison. For example, I love coffee, right? By now you should probably all know that about me. I love coffee. Uh, but hopefully also you know that I love my wife, Chrislyn. Now, by comparison... I can easily say, I hate coffee compared to her. <laughs> she is infinitely more valuable to me than the hot bean juice that I drink in the morning. Um, so this is kind of the, the by comparison thing that uh, Jesus means when he says that you must hate 
everything, including your own life, in order to be his disciple. It's not hatred like we tend to think where we're like angry and nasty. It's to love less by comparison. So that will help us understand. Let's quickly cover the examples that Jesus uses in uh, our passage. Uh, metaphors, he talks about, uh, we can put them up on the screen, Luke 14, 26 to 32. I won't read them, but there's the builder who's counting up his materials and the king who's counting his army before going to war. Now, I bring these up because they're in the passage, but also because for my whole life, I have applied this in a way which means that I am the one building and counting the materials, and I am the king who's, you know, calculating my men before going to war, which is a fair enough reading. That's, that makes sense, and it's true. But some theologians would suggest a slightly different reading, which just shifts the meaning a little bit, and I wanted to share it with you. And that is where it is Jesus who is the builder, and Jesus who is the king. What if it's Jesus who's the builder and is counting his materials, his disciples, and Jesus who is the king, counting his army, his disciples who will fight the enemy? Because Jesus is seeking people who will be useful in finishing what he began, his mission, right? And so again, this shifts the meaning so that the power is taken slightly away from us and put back on Jesus, which is a good thing. And yes, we are still carefully thinking about the cost of discipleship, but Jesus is the one who's building the church, right? Jesus is the king who is leading armies of angels as well as humans in his kingdom on earth here and now to fight back against darkness. In either reading, like I said, I think they're both true. The truth is that Jesus is not interested in amassing large crowds. More so, he desires serious disciples who are sold out for his kingdom. And it, is, it seems ironic that Jesus would thin the crowds. Like I said to us, it's like, that's crazy. You've got this large following. What are you doing discouraging them from following you? But Jesus knows what he's doing. right? He doesn't need to attend conferences to learn to grow, how to grow his church. He is the one who had the perfect model in mind to grow his church, both while he was alive and afterwards with the disciples that he called to himself and equipped to send out and spread the word. It did work, and it's still working. Praise God. But the point is, at least in this message this morning, is that Jesus prefers a smaller, more committed group of disciples to carry on the mission than a large crowd of observers who are just interested in, you know, seeing a miracle or whatever. And so this brings us to the question that I've been wrestling with all week and that I'll put out to you as well to pray about. Are we willing to hate everything else by comparison to the beauty and wonder of Jesus? Or are we in the crowd, you know, perhaps listening or following at a distance, but just in it for a less significant reason and ready to turn away as soon as this becomes challenging and costly for us? Are we willing to actually follow Jesus where he is going? 
This is an incredibly important question as we begin to put our trust in Jesus and continue to put our trust in Jesus as his disciples. As he taught in Luke 12, 25, or John 12, 25, the one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So this is heavy, and the tension is still thick. Uh, but before we hang our heads you know, and walk away, I, I actually wanted to take this morning to encourage us in this area. Right? Maybe you don't feel like you have your life together following Jesus as he prescribes it here, and you feel challenged by it. Maybe you are like, no, I don't hate my life in the world. I actually love it, and, it's, and it feels impossible for me to lay down and pick up my cross. But I would like to suggest a few ways in the context of this passage that you are discipling after Jesus, that you are carrying your own cross, so to speak. Uh, can anyone remember the times that we've done clickbait sermons? Do you know what clickbait is? That's like the cheap internet headlines, like local doctor hates this one trick that will reverse aging by 50 years or whatever. And it's got a weird picture of someone. No one else sees those on their sidebar. Okay, you have better ad blockers than I do. Um, <laughs> I, I actually enjoy seeing them because they're funny. So uh, I thought this morning we could come up with a headline to uh, pursue for a little while as we consider how we could apply this. And here it is. Three surprising reasons... Sorry, I got it wrong. Three surprising signs that you hate your life. Three surprising signs that you hate your life. Now, remember the context of what we just learned. Out of context, I mean, you're probably still going to click on the link because it sounds like entertainment at least, but three surprising signs that you hate your life, as in you are discipling after Jesus. Number three will surprise you. Okay. Um, <laughs> Let's go through them and be encouraged as we do. Sign number one that you hate your life, as Jesus suggested in this morning's passage, is that you were involved in the process of killing the sin in your life. That you're involved in the process of killing the sin in your life. Listen to Paul's words in Colossians and then in Romans. Colossians 3.5, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Then Romans 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Hallelujah. Death no longer rules over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so as we read this, does this describe any part of your life? Are you able to be humble and identify sin? in your heart or in your behaviors, and lay it down to Jesus. Have you ever done this? Have you ever experienced the freedom of forgiveness from God and being alive to him, no longer dead in your sin, but raised with Jesus? Then good news. 
you hate your life. Your life is not precious to you like it used to be in the worldly sense. Because disciples of Jesus are willing to get over their temptations, the, the, the sinful things, and trade them in favor of the better things that God is giving us. And by comparison, our temptations don't hold power over us because we don't love them anymore. Sure, we're tempted still. We're not perfect. But with Jesus alive in us, we don't love our sin. We fight against it. So if you are in this ongoing process of dealing with your own sin, then you are following after Jesus in this way. So that was sign number one. The second sign that you hate your life is that you not only surrender your sin to God, but you surrender everything else. Not just the bad things, but also the good things, your gifts, uh, your time, your efforts, and so on, right? If we're willing to lay it all down for God and his purposes, then I think we are taking seriously the call to discipleship. Paul both exemplified this for us and also teaches about it. Uh, we can read in Acts 20, 22 to 24. He says, Now I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I'm compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So you see, as we follow after Jesus, we're freed of the responsibility of having to have everything figured out and the illusion of, you know, controlling the present and the future. We can be done with that and just give that to God, give our time to God and our lives to God, our careers, our successes and failures, lay it all down for him to use. Because we can be confident that God is sovereign over all, right? That Jesus does reign and that he is able to use us as imperfect as we are, None of the disciples were perfect, but he still used them. And we can be like them too as we obey God's calling in our lives. So continue on that. Continue obediently on the course that God has placed you on, like Paul. And by comparison, we'll continue to understand and realize that our, our time on earth, our lives, so to speak, are not so precious as the glory of his kingdom that we are heading towards. That's the second sign, which leads us into our perspective, into the third sign. Um, sign number three, that you indeed may hate your life, is that you endure uh, suffering with hope. As Christians, we can endure suffering and afflictions with hope. Because we believe and trust that life is bigger than what we have today, right? That uh, God's kingdom has come through Jesus and is still yet to come, at which point God restores all things. Everything that's broken will be made new again and perfected and glorious. And that gift is the salvation that we get through Jesus Christ. So we suffer with hope. Romans 5, 1 to 4 explains this a little bit. It says, Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's what we were learning about in our Kidsgate story. Uh, we have obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces proving character and proving character produces hope. This is one of my favorite passages because it shows us that following Jesus means that suffering is no longer meaningless. It's no longer the the one thing that we avoid at all costs, which is our more natural tendency, right? Because we follow Jesus who suffered on the cross. And this is the thing about Jesus calling his disciples to carry their cross. He was speaking prophetically. This isn't even the first time in Luke. We've already heard it once before. But surely his disciples didn't understand what he was going to do, but he did. He knew that he was literally headed for the cross. And so when he says to his disciples, you too must carry your cross, it had real meaning. And Jesus is not asking his disciples to do anything that he himself would not do. Any suffering that we would experience is nothing that he hasn't already suffered as he died on the cross to take our sin. Thinking not of his own life and his own glory and his own comfort, so to speak, but but of our salvation as he endured the shame. Jesus did renounce everything else. All the riches and, and you know wonder of creation, he set that aside to save us from our sin. And so, if we desire to be a disciple to this Jesus, we will bear a resemblance to that, right? As not only our Savior, but as our leader, the one who we follow. And yes, there is a cost, but the reward, if not in this lifetime, then eternally, will cause everything else to pale by comparison. Uh, Romans 8.18 says it like this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. We can't even compare them to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. As I think about this, I I kept humming the tune of that, uh, the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Uh, One of the verses says this, Through death into life everlasting he passed, and we follow him there. Over us sin hath no dominion, for more than conquerors we are. And in the chorus is, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you this morning knowing that following after Jesus is amazing, but it is not easy. So Lord, thank you for this reminder and help us to surrender our lives. Help us to love nothing else in comparison to you, God, that nothing else would compare. And strengthen us, Lord, so that we would not so much be 
a crowd, but Lord, the church, and that this church would be filled with committed followers of Jesus. May we be a devoted people willing to obey you and pick up our cross, whatever you may ask of us, whatever the cost. God, may we be used by you to build your kingdom, to complete the task, and to fight against the attacks of Satan, Lord. May we be faithful to what you've called us to. And would you encourage us to know where we can follow you here and now in our own lives, and by your grace, that we would be obedient to your leading until you come again.